All right. Thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. Uh, last week, there we go. Last week, uh, we celebrated as a church uh, together at the park. Anybody was there? All right. I was not there. But uh, I did see pictures, heard some great things about our combined services. My family and I, we actually were traveling on vacation all the way to the West Coast. We were um, in Canada on Vancouver Island, wrestling bears and things of that nature. So it's good to be back here. We survived that. Uh, no, but uh, it was a great, a great time uh, swimming, relaxing, uh, just kind of chilling with some family. Uh, so it was good to be away, but it's good to be here to continue our service, I'm sorry, our series uh, called uh, Topography. And uh, we've been talking about important places in the Bible and uh, some impactful messages and things that took place there and what that means for us today. So today we're actually going to unpack um, uh, a place that I got to visit myself and Greg. We got to visit on two separate occasions while we were doing our master's. Uh, program. We got to visit Jerusalem. And um, uh, you've heard Jen. She's traveling right now, right? She's traveling with your wife right now. But uh, we've got a, a good opportunity for some of us where we've been overseas and been visiting some places um, that uh, are, in fact, biblical spots. So today, I'll bring our attention to Jerusalem, and uh, we will be engaging in a story that uh, kind of uh, takes place on when I was there. And some of you know that's been around for a long time. Uh, I'm kind of a hip-hop baby, and I, you know, so a lot of times in my head there's visuals or metaphors that I'll get. And the place that we're going to talk about today was kind of like a stage of sorts to me, the Temple Steps. Uh, so we'll take a gander and take a look at some of the uh, pictures. We'll go to the next slide, please. And uh, it reminded me it set the stage like a rap battle, right? This place. So some of you are like, oh, God, here's Chris. And his rap battle stuff. But because on the temple steps of Jerusalem, Jesus has some sharp words uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees. So while I was there, I couldn't help but to think, like, man, Jesus battled here? This is crazy. Let's go on to the next slide, please. So it wasn't a stage like that, but this is more of the stage of his choice for that, that these battles that we'll hear about today. But uh, while we were there, this is actually a, a model. This is a model. Uh, a replica of what uh, Jerusalem would have looked back in Jesus' day. So this is uh, J Jerusalem, the museum there. And uh, so I was there. It's, it's pretty big. Uh, Greg, did you get a chance to go? Yeah. It's pretty uh, big. It's awesome. They really tried to do it to scale of what it would have looked like. And I remember kind of going around, and then I got to the place, and I'm like, these are the steps. Yo, this is so dope. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure I took a picture of the stage. There, we go to the next slide. Then we actually got to walk there, so that's quite a big difference, right? Kind of looks like, honey, I shrunk the kids or something. <laughs> but the temple is huge, and when you go on these steps, it's a huge place. So a lot of times when we think about stairs or a staircase, it's these like, hmm, it's not like that, my friends. It's big. Go to the next slide, please. And again, this is uh, kind of more of... Uh, you can see the details of the, the temple... And you can see in the back the temple steps. But also what I think is cool about the, uh, this here is that you can see the, the dip in there. And you've heard me talk about the Kidron Valley that exists. And on the other side of that dip is uh, the Mount of Olives. You've heard a lot of things about the Mount of Olives. 
And I say here in Rock Island, the Quad Cities, we actually get a really good idea of what that could kind of look like, the views, because we have long view, and then it kind of goes down, and we can see a bridge. So you can picture uh, on the other side of there, Mount Olives, and Jesus walked this thing, all right? Without the long view path, you know, it's rugged. There's no trails and things of that nature. So I love this because it kind of depicts the ruggedness of Jesus' everyday commute. No Uber or anything like that. Um, but the Jesus sandals that we know well from a lot of the pictures, uh, that he was traveling to the temple steps. We can keep going on another picture, please. So I was on the other side, right? And uh, you can see the gold dome of the temple. Uh, you can see this is what it would look like when I went out to the Mount of Olives. And interestingly, in the middle, you see a lot of graves. You see uh, all these tombs, a lot of whitewashed tombs that we'll get to, that Jesus used uh, some of these visuals in his rap battle. Well, he used some of these visuals to point out uh, some of the things in the people on the steps. Uh, let's continue on the next slide, please. Uh, so very, very hot that day. You can see uh, how, you know, they had us right out in the sun for this presentation right there. A lot of us, you know, our brains was kind of dead right there. You could see the smart people were in the shade right there. And I was like, yo, I hope we're not sitting here that long. But I, I had to kind of get up and just move around. I took this picture and I just noticed again uh, what you could see when you're on the other side of the temple. Next slide, please. And some people say, well, how do you know that Jesus went to the temple steps all the time? There's a lot of scriptures about it. Matter of fact, when Jesus was young, it says in Luke 2:49, why were you searching for me? This is uh, Jesus, little Jesus. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Uh, there's a story about Jesus. Um, you know, the parents lost him. And he was over here. He's like, where y'all thought I was going to be at? <laughs> my father's house. Go to the next slide, please. And Luke 21, 37 through 38, how do we know that Jesus kind of went that path that I was talking about? It says, each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Uh, and this was myself and my cohort. We just were kind of looking at the view of the steps along the wall right there. And hopefully that gives you a little better visual of kind of the place that we'll be talking about um, as Jesus will use the geography of the place and some of these things that I just pointed out to you in the words and the choices that he used to confront scribes and Pharisees in this very place. So if you know, if you've ever had a chance to uh, watch a rap battle or if you even haven't, but you can think of what it might be, uh, it's two rappers that go head to head and try to outwit, outshine one another with their words and rhymes. And they use a lot of imagery. They use a lot of metaphors to kind of diss or to, uh, to put their opponents to make them look bad, right? They also use a lot of keywords and references to things and places around them to show their knowledge, to show their creativity. Uh, it's very competitive. It's a very confrontational form of art and entertainment. And again, and that's what brought my mind to 
this, uh, this particular metaphor because today, again, we journey to the southern steps of King Herod's temple where Jesus confronted the religious leaders with a powerful illustration that would have cut right to the core of who they truly were. We'll be looking at Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. Uh, you can take that, you can look at that on a Bible app. Um, if you do want a Bible, a physical Bible, we do have some out in the lobby that you are uh, able to take with you or to grab as well. To tr tradition in our church is to be present for the reading of God. If you want to stand up, you can do that, but just to be present uh, for the reading of God's word. Uh, you can stand with me in spirit or physically. Matthew 23, 27 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, pray that it will speak to us today. We thank you for your son who came to show us the truth and the way. Help us to listen to your word and to follow your example and help us to be authentic and help us be clean on the inside, not just on the outside, and to learn what that means today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage uh, in Matthew 23 is a part of a series of what they would call the seven woes that Jesus pronounced against the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. In fact, if we would have started at the top of Matthew 23, Jesus just goes in on them. Uh, usually rap battles are like three rounds, and Jesus had way more rounds ready. <laughs> Him. He was like really letting these guys have it. Um, uh, but at the particular passage, uh, he chose to kind of expose some of their wickedness through the illustration of whitewashed tombs. Uh, but he also warns the disciples and the crowds not to follow their examples or listen to their teachings. Now, why? Um, before we dig into what Jesus meant by calling them whitewashed tombs, let me tell you a little bit about scribes and Pharisees. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders of Israel at that time. Sounds good. But they were supposed to teach and model God's law and God's love. But instead, they twisted God's law, abused God's people. And I'll tell you a little bit more. Scribes were educated. They, uh, their business was to study the law, to write them out and make observations about them, the religious laws. They were experts in the scriptures and, uh, the and held traditions like they, they were like the elders, the OGs in the community. They had a lot of knowledge and influence in the, in the society. Uh, the, the Pharisees were highly religious leaders concerned about knowing and keeping the law. They were strict um, in following the rules and rituals that they thought would please God and make them holy. They had a lot of respect and authority among the people, but here's the problem. Eventually, a lot of the scribes and the Pharisees became corrupt and hypocritical. They made up their own rules, made up their own traditions that burdened people instead of freeing people. So at this point, Jesus knew 
that they cared more about their reputation and status than about God's glory and about God's love and extending God's grace. So they looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they were kind of evil and grimy. They had all the right answers. Imagine that. They looked good. Imagine that. And these were the top leaders of the day. And no one wanted to challenge them except Jesus. <laughs> so let's look at what Jesus said to them. He called them whitewashed tombs. And what does that mean? And you, know, you kind of get the illustration. But uh, let me tell you a little bit about the background of the story um, especially, like I, I mentioned earlier, having the privilege of visiting the Southern Steps in Jerusalem. Uh, I just, again, remember standing in awe, imagining what it was like when Jesus stood there, when he taught there, when he was there as a kid, uh, from the Mount of Olives where uh, we could visibly see tombstones to the ancient burial grounds. Um, we can kind of grasp, especially from some of the uh, slides that I showed, some of the imagery that Jesus drew upon in his confrontation with the religious leaders. The temple, as you saw, that was my professor that was kind of taking some steps on the temple uh, stairs there, but it was huge. It was magnificent. Um, it occupied a large space in comparison to all of Jerusalem. It was the center of worship and sacrifice for God's people. It was also the place where Jesus taught crowds of people many times during his life. Um, the Southern Steps uh, was an entrance to the entire Temple Mount complex. People had to go through these steps to enter the temple courts where they could pray, offer sacrifices, or listen to teachers. So Jesus went to these steps many times. As mentioned in Scripture earlier, he went as a child with his parents during Passover. He went as an adult to teach and heal people. He went during the final week of his life before he was crucified. So Jesus' connection uh, to the temple was deep, and it was personal. And in this case, it was actually confrontational. And again, as I sat and looked at the eastern side, you all saw that there were tombs along the hills of Mount of Olives. And these tombs were ancient monuments. Uh, some of them even predated Jesus. Uh, some of them were even mentioned in the Old Testament they were visible from the temple steps, especially during certain times of the year when they were whitewashed. Why were they whitewashed? In order to worship the Lord in a temple, you had to be ritually pure. You couldn't be tainted by anything that would make you unclean. So one of the things that would make you unclean was death. You couldn't touch a dead body. You couldn't touch a tomb. You had to Stay away from any form of death whatsoever. But the problem was there were tombs everywhere around Jerusalem. And some of them were not easy to spot. They were hidden under rocks or dirt or plants. So in order to help people avoid accidentally touching them and becoming defiled, they would whitewash them. They would paint them. Uh, some, of, uh, some people that had more money... Uh, would make more monuments. You would see them a little bit more monumental. Um, and I actually uh, got a chance to drive past. Uh, we walked past some of them as well, and I got to point out a few. Um, and if I could show you, like, wow, that's great. These, there were some uh, people that had money that would make sure theirs looked really, really nice. All right? 
whitewashed very well. But in order to help people avoid touching them or be defiled again, they were whitewashed. But as we know, inside, they were still full of death and decay. So the confrontation itself was, is picturing Jesus standing on the southern steps, looking towards the Mount of Olives with the tombs in view, and he was unafraid of the powerful religious leaders that were out just doing their thing, and Jesus confronted them. Now, the confrontation uh, with the scribes and Pharisees, to me, is pretty profound uh, because it, it shows, you know, sometimes we look at Jesus and people use the kind of uh, violent Jesus, or when Jesus confronts people, they use that so they can be mean, right? He's like, look, so look, he just called them out. He, he just told them, he just flipped the tables. They like the, I, I always say, like, people really enjoy the flip table, Jesus. They could use that for anything. You could do something mean to somebody and be like, Jesus flipped tables. Hey, Chris said Jesus battle wrapped. So I'm going to tell you like it is. And this is where it's different. This is where even I had to take a step back and was like, this is kind of cool for me to think of a battle rap, but the point of battle rap is really tear somebody down. Jesus wasn't trying to do that. He's trying to tell the truth of who they were. He wasn't really trying to be cute and stuff. He just did a direct hit. And he just used an illustration. Like, y'all really want to know what these guys are like? Look, <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> but the profound thing, Jesus sees through the external facades and calls us to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with him, to be honest with one another. So just as Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, I believe like even for us today in 2023, what we can see from that is not this mean Jesus that's pointing fingers, but how Jesus wants the best of us. Jesus wants us to be our true selves. And Jesus, I imagine him looking at them, not being like me if I battle rap, uh, but saying, no, like, let's just knock this off. Let's knock this off. Like, I know who you truly are. You guys are like these whitewashed tombs. But obviously, approaching or confronting people of this stature, he expected confrontation, as we would if we had to confront someone with love. You can expect a little kickback. You can expect, because all of us in this room are like a lot of the kids when we're, you know, when some of the first words that we know what to say is no. <laughs> that stays with us. <laughs> right? That kickback is within us. It's like a built-in thing. It's like, no, no. Right? How many people that are a little older, like, you enjoy being confronted about something that you know, like, you know there's something about you that needs to be checked, but when somebody confronts that, how many of you are like, oh, I've been waiting for you to say that? <laughs> I am so happy that you just put me on blast. I mean, thank you so oh, Can I just hug you right now? I, you just don't hear about that. You don't, you don't want that. I mean, if you do, then that's special. <laughs> and that's great. That's great. You know, I can't say, like, nobody does this, because sometimes I'll have somebody be like, Chris, I heard you say that, but I'm actually genuinely, I'm like, wow, you're, that's awesome. But I'm not one of them. <laughs> 
that I enjoy or rebuke or, rejo or rejoice over someone that confronts me. And again, I say confrontation in the terms of knowing that we need that, knowing that we need to be checked on some things or we need to knock some things off. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, and that would have just been a tough line right there. That would have been a diss right there. Can you imagine how they felt when they heard it? Can you imagine how the crowd reacted when they heard Jesus say that? Because sometimes there's people that can say stuff, and you're scared to say it, and you're like, oh, so-and-so said this. Did you hear what they said? This is so-and-so said this. So, and you kind of use that as your way of confronting. I imagine there was some that have been abused verbally or whatnot by the Pharisees and scribes that rejoiced that someone finally spoke up. But that, at the end of the day, I think that, again, it's a hard pill to swallow, but sometimes we need that from Jesus. Sometimes we might be too concerned about our outside appearance than what is going on on our inside. I think if we took a poll, no one in here enjoys somebody that's being fake. You hear teens talk about it all the time. Oh, that person's fake. They're fake. And I'll be like, what does that mean? They're just not real. They say something. Look at this text. I'll show you, but look what they text so-and-so. They're fake. Nobody likes but we act fake. Nobody likes it. Done to them, somebody being fake, but we act like that. How do I know? There's a lot of times. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Good. Good. It's just automatic. And one, the one time I went home, I knew, I was like, I don't know why I said that. But I don't feel like engaging in the conversation right now. Not right here. Not in the aisle at Hy-Vee. Ask me how I'm good, if I'm good, right? We don't want to get into the nitty-gritty right on the spot like that, so we just by default say good. I don't know the best alternative, but I know that 100% of the time, sometimes we're just not good. And sometimes it's okay just to be like, I'm not doing that good. Oh, thanks for sharing. You might not even have to get all into it. You could just say, no, I'm not. But the big question when I look at this, because it's hard, because we can become legalistic too. There could be somebody like, well, what are we supposed to do? Whenever somebody says that, we're supposed to sit down and have coffee and talk to them about our lives? No. However, we can talk to God about what's going on. We can envision Jesus asking us how we're doing, looking at us, and maybe even saying, like, man, if I was on the temple steps, what would he be calling out in me right now? Imagine that battle taking place. But not to shame you, but to call out who you really are. To get rid of some of the trash or some of the fake facade. You can have that conversation 
with Jesus. You can have that conversation and say, God, Holy Spirit, just help me be who you truly want me to be. And sometimes I think that's better than just, you know, spilling your guts in in aisle seven in Ivy. (laughs) Right? So practically, understanding that Jesus knows and that Jesus is ready for that conversation. But we want to be the one, we have to be the ones that are willing to step up on that stage. He already knows. Jesus already knew how they were before he got to the steps. We heard the, many of us heard, heard the verse in 1 John 1, 9 that says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And sometimes we just forget these truths of that. Confession doesn't mean that we just have to go to a brother or sister and reveal everything. But we have a God that sees us and knows us. We also again can ask God's spirit to guide us into the truth that will set us free to depend on him for the strength and wisdom in all of our situations. James 4.8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Galatians 5.16 says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And again, these are some scriptures that we can take and be super legalistic and say like, oh, I got to do this and this and this. But this is again one of those things where it says that we can walk into the presence of God. We can ask God's spirit to help guide us. Another thing I was thinking about is we can love God's people and try to serve out the mission that God would would call us to and try to figure this out. That's kind of big. But when we think about our fellowship with God, the vertical way, and a lot of times we might forget about the, you know, the horizontal relationship that we have with others. Um, I was thinking a lot of us, you know, we're in the day and age where we have a lot of superhero movies and stuff like that. But I also was thinking about some of us, you know, we we, want to act like we're bulletproof and nothing affects us and we're we're good. We got this. We're all. And we, we might not let our, you know, let ourselves, um, up under someone else's authority, like that's, that's tough these days. When we think about church, there's a lot of people that's going through deconstruction stuff, and there's a lot of people maybe have church hurt. Um, back in the day, there was things where people were like, we got an accountability group, or this group, and we get together and do all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that's not needed. I'm not saying it's here or there. However, is there someone in your life that you can build a reciprocal, trusting, loving relationship with that can be a truth teller to you. And that's, that takes a while to develop that. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up, meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another encouraging one another. 
what does that mean for us to be connected with another human being that we actually allow them to speak truth and life and love to us? Not in an abusive way, not in a way where they're uh, uh, in power over you, but empowering you. These are the practical ways I think that we can strive and move forward to having authentic relationship with the Lord and more of an authentic relationship with one another. I'd like to close with a poem that I wrote. A few years after, uh, I think I wrote this poem early in my 30s, and um, I, uh, there was a time when I was reflecting on uh, a very difficult season in life that I had in my college years. You know, I, I, uh, Greg and I, we went to the same ministry, uh, college for youth ministry, but we didn't see each other. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. We didn't even know each other. We went to the same. Christian college, different years. He graduated for me and I showed up and we might have even been there at the same time. It's weird, and then we met later. Uh, but on this Christian campus, uh, it was probably my uh, sophomore or junior year. If some of you have heard my story before, it was a difficult time. Right in the middle, I was questioning a lot of things. I was going through a lot and uh, it, was, it, was, it was very hard and I almost kind of abandoned ship, I would say, to uh, even what I thought was my calling as youth ministry, I was like, man, this ain't for me. I'm going through so much stuff right now. I, I felt like you know, I'm on this Christian campus, and I'm a youth ministry major. I'm supposed to have it together, and I didn't. And so for either my sophomore or junior year, I just felt like I was just this fake dude saying all the right things, trying to do all the right things, trying to look cool. But inside, I was crumbling. So this is a poem I wrote for that time. Uh, where I was at in my Christian faith as I reflected on it a few years after graduation. It's called When I Was 22. It's a long time ago. <laughs> when I was 22, I thought I had this Christian thing down. Christian college, youth ministry major, check. Christian girlfriend, yeah, she's a believer, check. Job, save a little, spend lots every two weeks. I had a check. Back then, anyone would have banked on me as a guy making wise investments with my time, with my energies, but I was in a place where my faith became fake. You know, nobody witnessed the war, this war raging within, and somehow inside this Christian campus bubble, I conformed more to pop culture. Insulated by Christian community, passing Bible classes, answering any question about whom did Christ come for? And after class was over, I'd be snuggling up in sin's comfort. All name brand Christian actions with a generic soul satisfaction and embracing gospel benefits, believing biblical truths, but bumping it to the side as my life's guide. So when it came to how I was living biblically, I had no problem pushing boundaries and extending my lines. My blessed assurance was more like a little insurance. And honestly, at that time, my salvation was like an insurance policy. I become immune to the life-giving biblical truths of my identity. I've forgotten I was a poem, 
written inside of the person of Christ, existing to carry out his inner desires. But I crammed so many selfish things first. I always showed up late for my good works. In other words, when it came to my relationship with Christ, I could have remained clogged art or he could have used another vessel. My junior year, my heart attacked. My junior year, God attacked my heart, soul weary from wavering, no longer content with complacency, tired of tottering, grieving over his gracefulness. I felt like I felt like I had my first tattoo. The way I was nervous for God's word to touch me, one long, slow scratch on heart with sharp needled rebuke. Ephesians 5.1 seemed like it tatted my soul, and that still voice woke me from my spiritual slumber. It was as if I heard God say, Chris, you have a choice to make. Why do you think imitating me means just sounding like me or just talking like me? Not just remembering what I've said. What about walking like me, living like me, loving like me? But I love you. I paid for your debt with my breath, and your breaths belong to me. My sacrifice is the only thing giving you the freedom to exhale. Imitate me. And I remember confessing. And feeling the weight lifted, I was the inmate set free, walking away from the prison I'd made for myself. At 22, I thought I had this Christian thing down, and all I was was a poor reflection, a foolish follower, and I learned something. That the world is dangerous, but through Christ's death and resurrection, I saw my biggest danger was... Me, a child of God, just hearing his voice but doing nothing. I'm glad I came to my senses because I assure you, Jesus is much more than blessed insurance. Amen. Amen. It says a lot where I was at like, with, with my faith at the time, wrestling with issues theology and all these things thinking I was just wrong, 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 wrong. And even writing that was very difficult and saying it was difficult, thinking about the place that I was and if I would have uh, just believed in all the lies and believed that I couldn't um, go back to Christ. And my hope for us as a church is that uh, we can bring ourselves on the stage sometimes and understand that sometimes uh, we need to look Jesus face to face for what it is and let him call out who we are so we can come to him. Not only with that, but to think uh, again about what does that mean with people here, people that we live with and have a community with, what does that look like? Uh, there are some people that yearn for uh, a community where you could be held accountable on some things. If you know you need that, uh, you should seek that. Uh, if it's just uh, someone that you can be a truth teller to and say, this is what's really going on, and just someone that needs this to be an ear for you, um, ask God to direct me in, in, into the things that I need um, 
So I won't be walking around feeling like I'm just this whitewashed tomb, showing up, everything looks great, but really, on the inside, it's not. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, that more than anything, that we can feel encouraged, God, that we all can understand the battle within ourselves and our minds and our hearts and our souls and our spirits. Um, sometimes it's even mentally grueling. We pray, Lord, that uh, instead of being intimidated or whatnot, that we can envision looking into eyes of love, eyes that love us and, and care for us, but lips that will tell the truth to us about who we are and how much you love us. I just pray, Lord, that we can ask your spirit to guide us in this way to a closer relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen.